We escaped in the middle of the night just to avoid being caught because if you were caught, uh, you would get into a, quite a, a fair bit of trouble. But our boat, uh, unluckily, we were actually lost out of sea for about three days. So we were just floating around the ocean, not knowing exactly where we were going. But then what the bad thing was, because it was an 18-meter tug and with 300-plus people, it was just too heavy. And uh, we were slowly sinking. Welcome to the Unfair Advantage Project. Unique perspectives, practical insights, and unexpected discoveries directly focused on giving you the unfair advantage. Introducing your hosts, Nadia Hughes and Terrence Toe. Welcome to the Unfair Advantage Project. I'm Terrence Toe from Strategic Corporation. I have my co-host, my name is Nadia Hughes, and I'm from Unfair Advantage Accounting. What How are you today, Nadia? Names. Here. Here. <laughs> <laughs> Starting uh, off well. Yes, I am really good. Thank you. Really I'm good? Just, um, I am uh, sitting in front of Terry, and uh, <laughs> I think it's going to be really good banter. Okay, awesome. So today, we're joined by a friend of mine, Terry Tran. He's an investment and trading mentor, and he's from the Freedom Trader. Terry, welcome. Thanks for joining us. And thank you for having me. Yeah, this is going to be fun. So we had a little bit of a pre-conversation before the podcast, and I reckon and, we've got some amazing stuff. And I'm just straight away going to attack you. Go. Freedom Trader. Yes. The slavery, as far as I know, has been abolished a long time ago. So you're trading freedom. To whom are you trading freedom to? <laughs> I believe in uh, freedom. I think, you know, the, the word, when I say the word freedom, right, it, it applies to not just freedom of, a lot of people think freedom is just financial and money. But for me, when I say I'm a trader or investor, there's really one purpose. For me, trading and investing is just a vehicle to allow you to have freedom of not just freedom of money, because money is, yes, that's very important. So it's freedom of money. Then secondly, freedom of time, because you have, then you have time for your kids, for your, you know, for your family even front time for yourself, just to do something, you know, for yourself. And then uh, especially also the, the last uh, freedom I believe is extremely important is freedom of, of experiences because I think life should be full of experiences and full of adventure. And if you don't have all three, I think life is still unfulfilled. But if you have all three, life just hums along and you, you actually, you know, really enjoy life and, and extremely happy about it. You know, uh, sorry, I will just pick on your ethnicity now. Your background, you are Vietnamese and yes. you... Sorry, you are from Vietnam, but you are Chinese, really. Correct. Please explain it to me. Yes. Yeah, so I was born in Vietnam, but my background is Chinese because my grandfather was from China who escaped the Japanese war back in his time, and then he ran over to Vietnam. So my family, in a way, has been sort of escaping war after war. And uh, after the Vietnam War, when the communism took everything, our family were basically were starving, so we had to escape. And with my father, who owned a fleet of trucks as a business, he... Pretty much uh, all the trucks were taken away from the, by the communists and we had no money left except for the one truck which he sold into gold bars and then that gold bar, I guess nuggets and bar, was in exchange for a, the, the ticket for our family to escape uh, by boat uh, from Vietnam back in the late 70s. And it was quite a tragic story what happened to the boat and um, you just very lucky to be alive. So would you like to continue because we just suddenly <laughs> gone into your story? Yeah. I mean, we escaped in the middle of the night just to avoid being caught because if you were caught, uh, you would get into a, quite a, a fair bit of trouble. But our boat, uh, unluckily, we were actually lost out of sea for about three days. So we were just floating around the ocean, not knowing exactly where we were going. But then what the bad thing was, because it was an 18-meter tug and with 300-plus people, it was just too heavy. 
and uh, we were slowly sinking and also run out of, there was actually no food, it's just water because of the weight. And slowly as we we're taking on board water, it was very thankful that a, a cargo ship that spotted us ended up saving us. And without that cargo ship, the truth is I probably would not be here today. We would have sunk. And that cargo ship then took us to a nearby refugee camp off the coast of Malaysia. And then from there, we were uh, processed uh, and waiting for a, a country like Australia, Canada, or United States at that time. They were opening up their doors to accept uh, refugees like ourselves. But then what ended up happening was uh, on one night, uh, it was actually Christmas Eve. And because we were in, in, in basically living in sort of makeshift shelters, it was not a proper roof. A storm hit and uh, a tree came down on our shelter and uh, crushed my father when he was sleeping next to my mum. And there my mum became a um, widow at the age of 22. Now, now, of course, having to look after me as well as a two-year-old. It's an absolutely tragic story, um, full of um, despair. And 300 people getting to suddenly rescued and then your father loses his life. It's, mm. uh, you don't remember any of it, do you? Uh, no, my mum has always told me the story. And then funny enough how things work out, about 20, actually about 15 years ago, there was someone who somehow knew my mother from the United States. And uh, we got a phone call out of the blue saying that we had a, a, all these basically a bunch of about 20, 30 photos of our boat and the saving of us and also photos of us on the island. And uh, it was this person who was basically taking photos on the cargo ship and somehow got in contact with my mother and sent us a package. And there, all the images of what I was always told about suddenly came real, became real because I saw the images of our boat, saw my father in the water swimming across because m most of the men had to swim across with, uh, with a rope and uh, the children in cargo nets transported just like human cargo onto the ship. So that's how I sort of saw, even though I don't remember it, being told and then seeing the photos, everything just came to life. And then having this beautiful life in Australia, this hard work and you Vietnamese people are known for very work ethics. You're very hard workers. I, had, I was fortunate enough to be working in the office early days when I was a graduate from mm. um, uni with a girl from Vietnam. Mm. And after finishing full day of work, she would go back to Springvale to help her uncle run the store. It was amazing. Right. And, uh, weekends, everything, she was just working. And that's how yeah. you guys... And your story actually reminds me of my mom because when she came over uh, with not pretty much nothing but the, the money that we had, uh, basically the clothing that we had on, and uh, she, I saw her, uh, this is when I now, I, I do remember, just seeing her, you know, go to work in a factory, metals factory in the morning, learning English in between, and then having to wash dishes at an Indian restaurant in Parramatta in Sydney at nighttime. And I was fo basically following her along. I was towed along everywhere she went. I went because, of course, back then, pretty much we couldn't afford child, she couldn't afford childcare. And even at times, I clearly remember most during the time before I, I was old enough to go to school in kindergarten, I spent a lot of my time in the female toilet, the entrance near the female toilet, inside the female toilet, because it's, the factory is actually very hot in summer. And there's this cool area where I'd be in the female toilet and I'd be playing Lego and drawing, coloring books uh, for a, a number of hours until she finished work every single day. So that's how I actually started my life. Um, you know, people say, you know, you weren't born in a rich and a wealthy environment or sort of thing. But when I look back, I realized, you know, the life I had back then was definitely way worse than a lot of, a lot of people actually have and when they, they're born. And do you remember much of your mom? Because she was working so hard. What was uh, it like to be brought up by such a busy mom? Yeah, no, I definitely. Because I, I spent, even though she was extremely busy, I always felt the love 
and there was never a, a lack of love and that's why how, how did you feel the love what, what how did she express your love because i would always be with her and then even though we couldn't afford it she'd always buy me a cornetto which at that time was like a i think 80 cents or a dollar and back a dollar back you know almost 40 years ago was extremely expensive and when she took me to work even though she only made i think 18 dollars for the night on washing dishes for like four hours so she'd still afford to buy me Mac, uh, my favorite at that time mcdonald's every single night every time we're there so literally when i look at it a massive i guess fraction of her income literally went to me just you know keeping me happy as well so i never felt that lack of attention and lack of love at all uh, even though we didn't come from a you know a, a good background uh, financially so but then that made me who i guess who i am because my first goal was always to look after my mum so once I grew up and, and started getting a job, I, my main focus was being financially free to getting my mum out of, the, uh, I guess, the, I call it the rut and never, having, never to allow her to go through that sort of life again. And I think, you know, you mentioned that what you do now is kind of, you know, somehow related to, your, to the story, you know, the story for you in the early days. Can you just, do you want to just expand on that really quickly? Yeah, yeah. I mean, one thing I didn't, I didn't mention is while we were on the island, after my father passed, unfortunately passed away, a very kind-hearted gentleman, which at that time we didn't know, he saw my mum's situation and, and offered to actually help. In other words, he helped to arrange and pay for my father's funeral because if not, he would be in a cardboard box. And from there, we always thought that he was a very wealthy businessman who could afford these type of things. So he did it. I even gave my mother, I think it was 100 US dollars back in the late 70s. And my mother didn't want to take it. They said, you do need it because you're going to a foreign place and you need some form of money and gave my mum the hundred US dollars. So Australia, of course, the beautiful country that accepted our family after the circumstances. So I always realized, you know, along the way, when I look at throughout life, there's a lot of people, you know, people say I'm self-made. I'm definitely not. There's been a lot of people that have helped me that I've seen firsthand that have helped my family, my mother. And then over time, as I've grown into who I am today through, you know, through successful investing, a lot of fund managers that have taken me on board as mentor, you know, as my, my mentor and taught me all, my, all the, that I know. So therefore, now I see it as, as my way of giving back. I've received the help. Now I actually want to also be one of the few that give back the help. And you know that, that person I was talking about that we thought was very wealthy. Once I got my first job, I went back in search of him and I found him after 20 years. And I, we, all I had was a, I guess, an address because they kept in contact with just annual Christmas, uh, New Year letters and New Year cards. And that, with that address, I crossed the border. I went to Singapore, crossed the border into Malaysia, a three and a half hour drive through basically dirt road. And with that address, I ended up finding him. And the next year, I, you know, of course, he was a much older man now. And I, my first thing was, I said, you know, I was looking for a, a big, like a, a basically like a, a factory of, of some form. He was, a, he was business, a wealthy businessman in my mind. But I ended up finding out that he was his business. He laughed, and his business was nothing but a school canteen. So, in actual fact, he came from Humblebee with without anything, but yet was able to at that time still help my mother out, and I never forget that. It's a wonderful story and uh, of human kindness. Yes, Asian community very well, well known for having tiger moms. What's your mom was like when you were growing up and trying to get an education? Was she really driving you, or you were didn't need this push? I think uh, I'll probably say half half. Would I say she was a totally uh, tiger mom? Probably not. Uh, she definitely was quite strict in terms of making sure that 
I was on the right path. I didn't go astray because where I grew up, uh, there was a, back then, because I lived in and grew up in, in a, a, a suburb called Cabramatta. And for those who know Cabramatta back in the, in the 80s and 90s, it was, one of, it was classified as the drug capital of, of Australia. And back then, there was a lot of heroin. There was a lot of uh, narcotics and being passed around and being sold. And even myself and, and being surrounded by narcotics and even friends and, and school friends of mine that were going on to drugs as well as selling drugs as well. So I always knew that uh, to make sure that I was on the right path, I never touched that type of thing. So partly was uh, self knowing that I had this goal of looking after my mum, and partly also my mother keeping me on the right track. So it was a bit of both. Cool. I'd love to fast forward a little bit to what you're doing today and you know what the freedom trader is all about can you for, for someone listening who probably never heard of you before sure uh, can you give us a quick you know a bit of insight into exactly what it is that you're doing now yeah freedom trader was born about three and a half years ago because so i started teaching and i realized I, I wanted to now go out and help the the average person off the street In, initially that we employed basically most of them were corporate life where because i went through corporate life myself and i never felt freedom as in being able to just quit my job if i wanted to or you know, find another job because I was worried that if I lose my job here, I won't have enough you know, money to basically pay my bills type thing. So I initially wanted to help and I did actually help a lot of employees. And then over time, I ended up also now with some of them becoming, you know, also helping business owners. I realized a lot of business owners also, if they're in startup mode, that's fine because, you know, they should always concentrate on getting their, their, their business up and running first. But once they're up and running and they now have, they have surplus cash flow, a lot of these business and entrepreneurs had no idea of what to do with the money. So a lot of the money just sat in the bank, earned 1% or 2% interest, and or they believed that they needed a lot of funds to either you know, invest, save up a deposit, invest in property, which is, I see it in my mind, very liquid. And also, you know, it's more longer term, which is fine. But then on the other hand, uh, they thought that they always needed this big amount of capital to start their, jo- their, their journey of investing in, for example, like stocks. But in actual fact, stocks is one area where you don't need that much capital. You just need a desire to want to do it. And if you know, if you get the right knowledge, you can actually literally start from where they are right now. And by teaching these business owners how to start investing properly and safely, what I found is a couple of benefits. One is that they de-risk from their business because most business owners that I see is that they put all the effort in their business, which is great. But when something goes wrong, you, because everything's been in the business, they've, they've just you know, plowed their time, their energy, pretty much their family into the business. If something goes wrong, that's all they have. So I see it as more of a de-risking strategy to take that capital, build a portfolio on the side. So no matter what happens, themselves and their family are always safe. So that's my number one priority for them. And then on the other hand, once they start investing, how I see it as another benefit is that most businesses owners, sometimes they, they feel the fear of expanding or they feel that they can't take ex, you know, a risk because they think that everything they do is technically risky in a business. But if they've got something on the side that now is powerful enough to also support them in times of need, that portfolio, it changes their mindset because then going forward, no matter what happens, they believe that they can now potentially take higher risk in their, in, in their business because financially, they're always safe. So it's got a dual benefit. One is de-risking initially, but then on the other side, allowing themselves to freely grow their business without the fear of losing everything. It's a great strategy. You spot on with business owners because this is our main market as, as well. Terence and I, we help business owners to grow their business. Yeah. De-risking, agree with you, not really suitable to, for startups. Straight away, you do take huge risk when you're starting your business. Yes. And if you like it to survive, you do have to diversify them. 
this is a basically i like the idea of having something on the side which help you to take further risk yeah and and, and this this nadia is where i i found the most help you know farmers themselves for example they i've got about 200 farming students in our program and farmers are of course they're entrepreneurs they're business people just like you know a lot of your audience and in the end they even have even higher risk because they then they also deal with you know the weather they deal with commodity prices they deal with especially they're supplying the retailers like the the woolworths or the coles they're also squeezed with pricing so they've got risk all over the place and now seeing them succeed in building portfolios outside their farm which is really outside their business it just makes me extremely happy because i see that already happening in the farming community in a big way mm. so you said that you don't really need, I mean, this is a strategy where you don't need much to start with. Yes. Can you give us an idea of what that looks like? I mean, you know, I mean, I'm not asking you to give us an exact dollar amount, but what's sure. the... No, I, in actual fact, I could give you a dollar amount because yeah, sure. uh, one of our younger students, when I got off stage in Perth and she came to talk to me, she was only 17. She's, I think she's 19-ish now. Uh, that was a couple of years ago. And uh, she asked me, you know, could she start? And she was basically working at KFC at the time. And, but I asked her, you know, are you leaving at home? She says, yes, I, I am, but I, I've got all these KFC sort of part-time money while I'm studying university and what do I do with it? It's like a hundred odd dollars a week and it wasn't much, but yet that a hundred odd dollars has allowed her to start building up a portfolio because every single time she gets paid with KFC, she then goes in search for a great stock, just like a business. She's finding a business to buy, but because the business is listed like a, as a stock, she can afford to buy these shares of this, this company and just slowly build a portfolio that way. So literally she only has about 150 per week or per fortnight and she's now built it into a massive portfolio. But then on the other hand, she's created this mindset that once she graduates, when real money comes along, when she gets her corporate job or whatever she does, then she now has the mindset of knowing she's got a life skill going forward that she can literally just start investing in a big way because she started small because that's how really everybody starts. That's how I started. I never started with you know, multi-million dollar portfolios. I started very small. And over time, as you build confidence, you realize, wow, this is not just building a portfolio. It's, building, it's a lifestyle because you get into the habit of investing consistently. Every time there's surplus cash flow, you take that amount. And then at certain times in, in, in the month, certain companies, certain sectors, uh, certain industries get sold down just through you know, demand supply. People don't want, that, want to be involved in that business. And the stock market allows you to therefore take advantage of that when certain sectors and certain industries, their, price, their stock prices drop and you, you're, you've now got this surplus cash. And you, you ask the question, you know, what do I do with this couple of hundred dollars or couple of thousand dollars I've, I've got this month? Where do I see the best opportunity? And there's always somewhere, somehow around the world, there's always stocks that are listed and that have dropped in price during that month and you can take advantage of that. Okay. We now come to a point when I would like to ask you to give our listeners crash course yes. on investing. Imagine um, that in front of you sitting an absolutely fresh person, never mm-hmm. done debt in stock. All they done is just heard about it. Yes. And they're just wondering, what about shares? People invest in shares or how do I deal with stock? What is it? I have no idea. So if you can take um, this person and educate them in probably a very short period of time, what would you say to them? Yeah. Firstly, I think the biggest mindset shift that I can give them is, is when they hear about the word shares or stocks is, is not to view it as a uh, as like a ticker symbol. Like, you know, you see these stock codes like Woolworths is W-O-W, for example, or the National Australia Bank is N-A-B. So a lot of people just see these shares as just codes, you know, on a screen and, and they see it on the news. But if they were to switch their mindset into saying, seeing these stocks as, I guess, as businesses, because they are real businesses that are, all it is is just a real business that is listed on a stock exchange. 
And if they view that as a business, when they're now approaching uh, that investment and they want to buy a stock, what they're doing is they are buying a share of the business. So all the rules apply to a business to exactly the same as when you're going to either buy or invest in a private business, except that this business is now listed. So all the, all the numbers that apply to a, you know, when you're buying a business literally applies to buying shares. There is no difference. So that is firstly number one. And number two is a lot of people's investments sometimes, or, uh, you know, I call it investments, but sometimes they get stock tips or stock or stock advice, so to speak, from their friends and family. And I'd say, don't listen to that. And if you, if you do get a stock tip, the most important is to run that stock tip and run it through a, a process or a filtering system to know whether even whether that tip or that idea is worthwhile. And most times in actual fact, it's actually not worthwhile to even go forward with it. You know, if the numbers just don't stack up, you let it go. So our job as a stock investor and trader is, is we want to focus on the very best, which is about really about 1% of the listed stocks out there in the market and 99% are actually rubbish and they just don't apply. They might apply down a track, but they don't apply and should not be in your portfolio right now. So that's from that point of view. Mm-hmm. The, where do they start? Okay, I've got, uh, let's say, $500. Mm-hmm. What would be my next step? One thing they, they could do is uh, download our, our free checklist that's on our website at thefreedomtrader.com. And there's a, a checklist there that literally will give them the 10-step the guide or 10-step uh, numbers that will help them choose the best stock. You know how I talked earlier about getting a stock tip and what do you do with it? That checklist will, if you just follow that checklist, literally step by step, those rules are there. And if the numbers on a financial report, and these days it's so much easier because everything's online now. And if you go in and you find a financial report of that company that you've been given as a stock tip, and you go through those numbers, the bulk of it will actually not pass. But if it passes, that's sort of step number one. And you realize, oh, wow, this is a, an idea that may actually work. So that will eliminate 99% of the rubbish. And you're now realizing that, wow, if it passes, it's now the 1% that actually passed that criteria checklist. So that's step number one. And then step number two is if they, if they find it that, oh, wow, this is something that I could do, jump onto our free webinar that I hold every single month because that I run a, a 90-minute basic training, free training, that I run through examples after example and I even have them do it uh, online and I show them you know what constitutes a, a good investment what and what constitutes a bad investment and when they see that it sort of opens their eye to investment opportunities around the world and we had in our brief discussion we have a few examples when you said chattings are off because what normally investors used to do they would go to and have a look at the performance of the stock looking at the comparative data you say that it's can be totally irrelevant. Please explain. Yeah, the most important thing is, is not look at the, the, the stock price. Because sometimes if a stock is, keeps on going up, it's actually potentially, it's, it's actually overvalued. What I get excited about is when I hear of bad news of sometimes they, a company or a, a misses a earnings, for example, and all of a sudden the stock price drops dramatically. And, or, or sometimes there's even potential bad news from left field, like Facebook had their privacy issue you know, a, a number of months ago, or uh, Apple iPhone number 10 didn't sell as well. And then obviously their, their price started dropping dramatically as well. So when I hear of that bad news, that actually gets me excited because that's those type of stocks I actually like. And I always say to another tip that, you know, only invest in companies that you're comfortable with and that you, you potentially uh, know about because a, a lot of people come uh, and come to me and they say, Oh, Terry, I, I don't have any ideas. What, uh, you know, what type of investment should I be investing in? And my number one thing is I'd say, open up the fridge, open up your, your pantry, open up your, your drawer and find out, you know, what, what products are you using? When you turn on the computer, what are you using? You're probably using Microsoft Windows. 
maybe look at Microsoft. When you're on the computer going to social media, what social media platform are you using? Facebook, most people, or Instagram, which is owned by Facebook. And now you go, okay, that, now that's an investment idea. Then you open up your, your fridge and, you, and you, you realize, well, Kraft or Heinz, you're using, using Heinz ketchup, or you open up your drawer and your Mediskin cabinet has, uh, has uh, Johnson & Johnson products, for example. So they are straight away, you know for, for a fact that, one, you understand that you've used their products and they're good. That's why you've bought their products. They are investment ideas because those companies are actually listed. They might not be listed locally, but they're listed internationally in the U.S., so, and I always say, yeah, break out of the mold of trying to always invest in Australia because we are a very small market. Have that idea that you can invest globally, especially the US market. It's, it opens up a, a myriad of investment opportunities. And now with the crisis, to, uh, for franking credits, looming crisis as yes. franking credits, what's your view on it? Because it's a big political agenda at the moment. Yeah, personally, I might, myself, I, I'm of the opinion that is, it's definitely a mistake from uh, the, the Labour government, which, which is trying to introduce it. And I think what they believe in is that they can you know, claw back, because in the end, it's all about budgeting. You know, they want to claw back a lot of the refunds that go out on the franking credits. But by doing that, what they forget on the other side of the equation is that in isolation, if Australia was the only place on earth that you could invest in, it will probably work. But in actual fact, Australia is only two, less than 2% of the world on investment opportunities. So if I had a choice... And I had a choice of investing in Australian companies, which I like because, primary because also they've got the franking credits. Nowhere around the world has. The United States does not have it. They've got double taxation on dividends. However, now they've taken that away on, from, for example, in my super fund, where would my money now go? It will go to the United States. So I would now even not even look at Australia. I'll just go overseas. So therefore, the tax refund that they probably thought they'll, they've budgeted for and that they'll receive uh, probably won't go there anyway. Well, they won't get it anyway because people have just moved their money from Australia to probably overseas. And what it does, it brings economy down, Australian economy down, because the valuation of those companies goes down. Oh, definitely, yeah, because a lot of our, for example, you know, people love our banks, but love our Australian companies, primarily because of, of our taxation system of, of the franking credits. Now you remove that, what happens? You remove that, now that investment doesn't look as great anymore because most of our companies in us, that are listed in Australia, they don't grow as much. They don't grow. I mean, if I, if I ask the question, you know, how many companies do we think that listed in Australia, actual global, have gone overseas and they've succeeded? Probably five, less than five. You know, the CSLs, the Cochleas, um, a lot of our companies tried, NAB tried, they went over to UK, failed, came back, so lost billions of dollars. ANZ went to Asia under Mike Smith, the, the previous CEO, lost a couple, many billions of dollars, came back. Telstra went over to Asia, Hong Kong, China, lost a couple of billion and came back. So a lot of our Australian companies seem to try to go overseas. They come back and with a lot of losses. So from that point of view, our companies don't, do so, don't seem to do so well. But yet, if you go overseas, a lot of the products that we use these days, they're actually overseas companies. And they seem to keep on, they seem to have that knack of growing time and time again, especially United States companies. They just grow and grow and all of a sudden, even though we live in across, you know, 15 hours across the, uh, across the ocean by plane, why are we using their products? We're using their products because they've introduced it to us. And if you go to the United States, how many Australian products are actually used in the United States? Hardly anything. Hmm. Exactly. All right. So a question for you. So for someone listening to this who's never met you before, one thing I would want to know is where you learnt your, where you learnt to actually invest, like how that all came about, how that worked for you. Yeah. Uh, a number of years ago, I wrote to my hero, uh, Warren Buffett, because I read a lot of his Berkshire Hathaway annual letters. 
And they themselves, those annual letters, are hard read, but those annual letters are an extremely great lesson. A lot of lessons along, a lot of principles, as well as you know, you, you learn how to read financials from, from, from his own Warren Buffett's financial report of Berkshire Hathaway. And then I ended up uh, writing to Warren Buffett himself, and thankfully, surprisingly, he actually also responded and replied back. But at the same time, I also learned from many fund managers around the, basically around our country and Australia, as well as around the world. And a lot of them, I, I did get a lot of rejections, by the way, but however, a, a, a quite a fair few number of them agreed to have coffee with me, to agree to have lunch. And because of my, I guess, my interest, and, and it wasn't just very shallow questions or more deeper questions, they found interest in me, in, you know, knowing that I wanted, I had this deep desire to learn as much as I could. And they kept in contact with me and I learned all, a lot of these lessons, not only from books, but also from, from um, seeing real fund managers out on the field investing millions and in many cases, actually billions of dollars. And that's how I learned the craft. And what would be acceptable return on investment for you in percentage form, let's say? Acceptable? You know, some people have this uh, overall expectation that you should be doubling your money or doing 50% mm -hmm. returns. And yes, you could do that on particular investments, but as a overall portfolio, if I'm able to generate year-on-year -year compound at 15% per annum, year-on-year, -year, some years I get it, some years I get 30 plus, I don't get that every single year. Some years I get only the 20, basically the 20s. Some years I even, you know, get the low, the, the single digits. And even some years I go negative, you know, negative five, negative 10. It's okay. But if I can compound and look back in time and compound at that between that 15 and 20% per annum, in actual fact, most people will become quite rich if they can compound at that type of rate. Well, it's a very good return. Now, the super funds who return you 10% just are heroes. A lot of investments promise 30%, and this is called very lucrative. Mm. Um, so what's happening with this elite investment, so to speak? Uh, a few of our clients came uh, on board, and they regretting of not investing. There, there would be some scheme going on, and they it's only certain amount of people you can invest up to certain, uh, up to certain threshold and you have to obviously have a quite a big amount of money. Mm. Very lucrative. Can you just shine the light for me on, on this type of investments? What's happening? Just to clarify, are you talking about the investment sort of for sophisticated investors, which have a, a lot of uh, money, so to speak? Yeah. I mean, some of them, a lot of these are potentially even private equity where you're, uh, either investing in listed businesses or companies or they potentially funds that invest in unlisted companies. So what I'd probably say is, yeah, you really have to look at the record of, of a fund manager who's running it. And if, if they've got a great track record, potentially definitely look into it because um, I never say no to any opportunities. I look at it and go, okay, what's their track record? If, tra if they've got a great track record, yeah, potentially, you know, it's definitely more trusting compared to someone who's just starting out and they really don't have much track record. So, These type of bigger, sophisticated investments, uh, they do work, uh, but definitely be more careful because, of course, you're now investing in much larger chunks of money of your, your, you know, your family's wealth into it. And if, if it goes wrong or goes, goes belly shape, then you'll be in a lot of trouble. And a lot of these that straight away what alerts me, whether they're sort of real or, or, or sort of not, not true to their word is depending on what they say in their marketing materials. I mean, the, the ones that, that, that promise you know, 30, 40, 50% type return every year. I take that with a grain of salt straight away because when something is too good to be true, it usually is. And you know, you just have to look back at the record of, you know, say Warren Buffett, over a 50, 60-year period of his investing, he's now generating on, on compounded. His track record is now about nine, just over 19% per annum over time. And one of the best traders on the planet, Jim Simmons of Renaissance Capital, 
they run you know, multi-billion dollar portfolios and their track record over 30 year period is 30% per annum, but they are the best on the planet. So the ones who, who promise and sort of, you know, sort of spruik, they can do 30, 40, 50% per annum. They're probably kidding themselves because you just got to look at the best on the planet and what they're doing, put that in perspective. And then you realize, oh, is this sort of, you know, real or not real? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. If, if it sounds too good to be true. It- yeah. Probably is. It probably is, yeah. And and a lot of people, you know, they when they especially when I get off stage and some people go, Oh, so what's your you know, what you just said, uh, you asked me earlier, you know, what's expected return? I said, if I can help you achieve that 10, 15, 20 percent per annum, I'm doing my job properly. And a lot of them say, Oh, is that all? Because someone the other seminar I went to last week uh, promised me that they can teach me forex trading, they can make fifty percent per annum. And I said, I'll oh, just be very careful because that's not achievable ongoing. They might strike lucky and do it one year, but then the next year they lose everything they have because through leverage. And the only way they can achieve that type of return is because they've leveraged themselves up. Mm-hmm. And all it takes is just a little, one little market downturn example in December, when November, December last year, when there was a market downturn pullback of 15% overall, a lot of people, because they were leveraged, they basically lost all their account. And then they come back to me and said, oh, Terry, this is my story now. So they've, they ended up losing fifty, dollars $100,000 and they end up coming back and realize, oh, it's actually not true after all. So, you know, I always say, you know, if someone spruiks something as of that nature, be very careful. Uh, I think rather than thinking about the, the upside, I always try to show people to think about the, the downside first because it takes so much money. You know, there's this thing where people say, I, I can afford to risk my 5000 or $10,000. And I always ask them, what do you mean you, you can afford to risk this? Because I ask them, how long did it take them to save that five dollars or $10,000? And some of them would tell me months, half a year. And I say, then why, why do you think if it took you that long to save that money, why do you think that you can afford to risk that money? Because you should not be risking it because that's, that is seed capital for the next million. And if you lose that, you've got to go back to square one and start saving from, from scratch again. And, and you should never be risking that money just to make some money. You should be able to invest that safely and have that sleep at night factor and be able to sleep soundly at night. And, Talking about promising the world, what do you think about cryptocurrencies and what's going, um, basically, everybody still relies on them heavily, thinking it's our future. Yes. I'm probably not the renowned expert on crypto. Um, a lot of, a couple of, I know some of my, the people around me have done it in, in the past. I know one particular person who ended up losing about 300000 on crypto when he bought it at the $20,000 mark and then within one year lost his whole mortgage again. In terms of the actual blockchain, I think that technology is valid. It's going to be, uh, it's definitely future technology that even the Australian Stock Exchange or the exchanges around the world, they're going to use blockchain. Banks around the world, that technology in terms of security wise is one of probably is, is our future. But what people must understand is that to separate cryptocurrency from blockchain, people tend to sort of put it together that cryptocurrency is blockchain. It is not. Cryptocurrency is a, is a digital token. That is not, that it uses blockchain technology, but it is not blockchain. So my preference, if I was interested in cryptocurrency I'd, and, and blockchain in particular, I'd look at the companies which develop and run blockchain, the tools and shovels behind it, not necessarily going to the, the, the actual token themselves, which technically don't really have uh, what I call fundamental intrinsic value because it doesn't pay a dividend. It doesn't make, uh, it, it's not a business that makes money every year. It doesn't produce goods and services that people use. So therefore, what they're doing is you're, they're, they're betting on a, a token or a digital token that may go up in value. So it's just all, for me, I, I call it thin air. And 
what is underlying the price. There's really nothing. It's what's underlying the price is demand versus supply. And is someone willing to pay you a higher price? And once that they lose that, that person who is willing to pay a higher price, then that value, of course, drops. So that's why it dropped from 20000 and then it went all the way down to, what, 3000 a 90, 90% wipeout. So therefore, most of those cryptocurrencies, which have now gone, you know, go belly up, is because they, were, they did not have any fundamental value behind, underneath them. But what they did show, the value of hysteria around mm. any topic, and um, quite often, stock, how, how many times have we seen the public hysteria opinion and journalists would be driving stock up or down, mm. and it's popularities uh, which triggers supply-demand, and this is what's uh, happening. What I did here from you, you actually staying away from hysteria, and you're looking at bad uh, bad events as mm. your advantage you seeing opportunity in any downfall an interesting um turn that's what i like about you and nazix uh, are really interested um, you very smart man are really interested to hear your opinion on barefoot investor yeah. uh, it's a beyond popular person who just um, giving basically bottles up common sense in investment strategies that's what i and sells it very well mm. yeah I respect uh, Scott Pape of uh, Barefoot Investor a lot. He's one of the few books that I believe is a real deal and has really simple yet effective strategies for the long-term investor. Uh, of course, he's not specific on how to invest, you know, in, like myself when I'm showing different criteria of selecting a stock. But uh, on the overall big picture point of view, I think it's uh, the Barefoot Investor is, is definitely should be on people's bookshelves or if, you know, if they don't have it, go get it, have a good read. And then it, it just shows them, it opens up their mind to, you know, what is actually possible of saving money, uh, retirement savings, how to sort of not get ripped off uh, and how to sort of avoid common mistakes that most people actually make by not in, in, in basically investing a bit of time and a bit of money on a book like that. Mm-hmm. I have heard a very funny comment recently from a new immigrant. She arrived to the country not for long ago. And first thing she grabbed is his book. And then she goes to me and she, he's not real. I said, what do you mean he's not real? Everybody just um, worships him here. Huh. He goes, yeah, he says, just take your 2000 and do this and this. Take your first 2000. He talks like these 2000 are lying on the ground. Does he understand there are people out there who doesn't have 2000? <laughs> dollars and it just really brought it back home because it's brought me back with the time when i had to clean toilets mm. to earn my living and for my children as well it's just really two thousand dollars was a lot of money it was just a dream yes yes and, and again that's that's coming back to where i say you know people say oh i just studied this strategy and i can risk my i've got five thousand dollars to risk on this particular strategy and i say what do you mean you got you've got you, you, can, you should risk that. Like, the, the question is, how long did it take you to, to save that 5000 And if, if, they, if they're earning a you know, couple hundred thousand dollars salary, that 5000 is not much, then that's fine. Uh, for most people, 5000 is a, a lot of money, which took them months to actually save that amount after all the expenses and living expenses, right, and mortgage payments. And yet, that once they talk about, I can risk that, that means that, that what they're doing is that they're, they're willing to lose, lose the entire 5000 but yet that 5000 was literally the seed capital to produce the next million through compounding interest over time. So and what your advice would be for this friend of mine who can't imagine to ha- having yet $2,000, but she can manage on $20 a week, what would you be doing with this money? I would say if you're managing on $20 a week, and, and this is provided she's got no, I guess, immediate plans of you know, wanting to buy a car or, or use of that. If they've, if they've got that, I think that is a great worthwhile goal and they need a car and they need you know, to get 
to get to work, for example, definitely that $20 should be in a savings plan and saving properly and safely and getting to that goal and achieving that goal. But then if they, they actually do not need anything else, then that $20 save it into, you know, say 100 or 200 and then start literally on a fortnightly or a monthly basis, put it into a savings plan and now finding great stocks at bargain prices and, you, and find a wholesale broker. And I'm talking about wholesale, which, you know, one, basically when I say wholesale, it's, it's extremely cheap brokerage of you know, a couple of dollars of trade, of trade brokerage. Then they can start investing it that way. So therefore, it doesn't take a lot to start, but you do need to start because compounding doesn't wait for anyone. It's, it's time that is the, is the best friend for compounding. And you know, the later you wait, what you end up doing is the longer you wait, you end up having to take more risk because you've had lost time. But if you start early, even on a small amount, one, you build confidence and build skill because you're doing it regularly and it becomes a habit. And then that, that habit becomes, obviously, it gives you the confidence. And uh, once you gain the confidence, then you can, what I call, scale up. Because when you see it working, what happens to psychology? When it happens, you then scale up by knowing, wow, because it works, I'm now very comfortable to everything I have. I'm happy to, because the strategy and the process works, everything I make and earn, I'm now happy to invest in it because I, I feel very confident and safe about it and I can sleep well at night. What's the best attributes of good investor? A couple of things. One is patience. Most people don't have it at all. And especially, you know, I live in the city and most people do live in the city. And I say, you know, farmers in actual fact are one of the best investors because they've got patience. They plant the seed and they watch their crop grow. We in actual fact should be like farmers when we're investing. We should plant the seed and then watch and give it time for it to grow. And when I say time, it doesn't mean years. It can mean a couple of months. You make the profit, you sell out. That's a strategy. But sort of day trading, buy, sell, buy, sell, that's just a lot of stress and a lot of transaction costs, which is, uh, doesn't do you well. The other one is uh, definitely persistence because from time to time, things don't go well. Investments that you've made, uh, I, don't, I do not have a 100% strike rate. We're sitting on about between 80, just, over, uh, just under 90% uh, strike rate. So what that means is every 10 investments we make uh, for ourselves, about almost nine of them are correct which means that we've got a 90% success rate. Our Blueprint students, and actually the bulk of them uh, have about 85 to 90% uh, success rate as well. And it's because the other attribute is they've got a process. It's important that you, you know your process and you stick to it. Not have a process, but yet don't action it. So therefore, I call it the, in a way, the, the, the three Ps. The patience, persistence, process. And if you have got those three, you'll do quite well. Awesome. All right. So I know that we've been through a lot and... I want to be respectful of your time, but I've got a couple of quick questions for you before we wrap this up. Sure. The first one is that, you know, a lot of listeners to this podcast are going to be entrepreneurs and business owners, people, mm. who, you know, running their own business and quite possibly in the day to day, you know, hey, you know, I, I need to make my business better and I may be thinking this, you know, how is investing going to help me to improve my business in any way. And we chatted off air about this mm. briefly, so I'm cheating. But yeah. I want to explain that concept because I think it's a really powerful concept. And mm. you alluded to it before by saying, yes, you are actually investing in other businesses, but I want you to expand on that. Yeah. This is actually not coming from me. This is uh, Warren Buffett, my hero and my, my mentor, is that he actually says that he himself is one of the greatest investors that's ever lived because he himself is a great businessman. And on the other hand, he's also a great businessman because he's one of the greatest, in, he's become a great investor. So what that means is they actually correlate because like I said earlier, alluded to earlier, when we buy into a stock, we're not buying into a, a stock. We're buying into 
a real business, a real company that is just listed. That's obviously much bigger than ours. They're multinationals potentially. And all the criteria that is used to select these stocks or these businesses that we buy that are listed, they basically relate to your business. So example, return on equity, return on asset, free cash flow, what do I call it? The debt to equity, the amount of debt the business or the company has, all those ratios also apply to your own business. So if you understand the ratios to, to now find investments, you then, therefore, because you're aware of those, all those criteria, when you're running your business, you're extremely now aware of all the, so these criteria to now implement into your own business. And at the same time, if you know very well, off by hand, almost second nature, that you need to run your business with these type of criteria, you also now, as an investor, on the other hand, you, when you look for investments, you will look for a business that is run efficiently and uh, profitably, just like your business as well. The same thing. So therefore, they both correlate with each other and you become better at both. Terence, it's actually a really nice segue to what you're doing. You are building businesses to sell. Who would buy a business with, with bad ratios? And uh, this is exactly. where it's all coming. It yeah, all yeah. came suddenly over together for all of us because Terence is very strong on building asset, building, uh, building your business as an asset. Mm. You to imagine you, this asset is ready for sale. In other words, for bigger companies, they become listed, which are available for sale by multiple buyers. Mm. And in order to be to fulfill this project, you have to be very sellable. And these ratios are attributes of sellability. So you have to be very healthy, liquid, and you depending on what type of buyers you're attracting, your business has to be tailored. Yes, yes. Requirements. Yeah. I so it just almost makes me think that our business owners should learn from listed companies. Mm, absolutely. It's a common sense. You probably laugh at me, Yeah, moment. Um, a stupid <laughs> one. However, it just uh, really, really brought this point home because I do love ratios. I do like watching them. And I look at my clients' businesses. I straight away can tell what the problem is. By just simply looking at the balance sheet. Yeah, even myself, you know, running, you know, my, my funds, running um, uh, this business of, of, of education as well. I'm also, I've been investing for so long. When I analyze the business of, of my own, I realize, you know, am, am I reaching these type of the criteria? Am I reaching these thresholds? Or um, have I basically reached the criteria of if I was a listed business, would someone actually like the business that I'm running? or that I, I built as well. So exactly the same thing. So in my mind, even though I'm not building to sell, in, in, because I, I just love what I do. So, but in my mind, a great business then allows me to reach even you know, reach more, more people. So yeah. therefore, um, hence why you know, I, I've got so much free resources, the free checklist, the free the webinars, all the free trainings, is because it allows me to therefore be, have the freedom to, to not only travel a lot around the world, but to now you know, give back and, and, and do it in a big way as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> we're gonna, just very excited both of us excited. and we instantaneously <laughs> yeah, yeah no a great mentor of mine said that the business that you can sell is also the business that you'd like to keep right huh. so yes. you know like it, it just because you're building a saleable asset does not mean you have to sell it you know it can also be a great asset just for you to keep and to retain the benefit of as well yeah correct uh, as uh, Close as yesterday, uh, we had a seminar, and on this seminar was very good attempt by Trent, whom I invited also to come to our um, podcast. So watch this space. Explain very clearly to us what are we actually looking in business for. Business doesn't exist, he said. The business is nothing. 
um, it's just a word, what you're looking at, it's assets, you assets and ability and skill acumen to squeeze the juice out of this asset. He didn't use these words, but for me, I written it down because mm-hmm. I said I am a person of metaphors. So you, you take an asset and your skill turns this asset, converts this asset into cash. Yes. And only skill that's what you effectively buying out there on the on the market. Mm. Ability of people utilize asset. Yeah, that was very interesting, and he was able in two minutes, space of two minutes explain the all three uh, statements, which is balance sheet, profit and loss, and cash flow. He tied yes. it up so nicely. So he he got my vote. That's and you are now telling what makes me think that all smart people read the same book. I just have to find this one because it's this congruent common sense that you all guys come to common denominator. Mm, Smart people probably read lots of books. Yeah. Actually, you're probably noticing my background, all the books. (laughs) So they're actually, when I look back, they're actually all investment books and all uh, business and and finance books, every single one of them. (laughs) So apart from Warren Buffett, who, who else is your hero? I would say my mum uh, straight away is my mother hero. Just watching, um, you know, show, sharing me, you know, when I talk about patience and persistence, my mother has had that in spades where she's uh, took a, literally a whole 10 years through hard work, double, two jobs, uh, learning English and, and, and then being able to have the patience to wait for the time to finally immigrate the entire family from, uh, from Vietnam. So she, you know, when I talk about those skills, in actual fact, a lot of the, that, those traits and abilities is because I, I, I saw her do it and her actions allowed me to learn it through seeing her do it. So that's my mum is definitely my other hero. Mm. Amazing, because it is an entire project to bring someone from overseas. Mm. All right, so Terry, thanks a lot. Going to have to let you go now because no I really appreciate and respect the time that you spent with us today going through all this stuff. But thanks for sharing everything. The last thing really is how can our listener connect with you? The, the best way I think uh, is my, my website, basically. Uh, if they want to know more about the Freedom Trader, so it's www.thefreedomtrader, T-H-E, freedomtrader, all one word, dot com. So they can download that free checklist we were talking about. That will straight away help them a lot because it's got the 10 criteria of how to choose an investment. And talking about the other side where you said, you know, how do business owners now assess their own business? If they ran through that checklist, it also applies to their own business as well at the same time. So that check will, will help them. That's what I'm doing now. I will be going on your website, on downloading this checklist. And yeah, download the checklist. And, yeah, and as an accountant, you'll probably know. Uh, you'll, you'll look at that and go, oh my God, this, this is just you know, common sense, but in actual fact, you know, common knowledge of choosing the best stocks. So that checklist is there. And then at the same time, if they want to know about a bit more about my history, uh, there's also terrytran.com. And that's got my personal story and a lot of the, I guess, I guess students that I've helped as well. So uh, there's a lot of interviews there as well, and they can see that as well. Phenomenal. But uh, Terry, remember, common, uh, common sense is not that common. Yeah, so, <laughs> true. Okay, that's amazing. Well, thanks again for coming on. I'm sure that if we get an opportunity, we'd love to have you on again. And, uh, but yeah, thanks a lot for your time and everything you've brought to this podcast. Really appreciate it. And I think Nadia. I'm very excited. It's just it. meeting somebody like yourself. It's just <laughs> great. That's excellent. All yeah, right. Thanks, thank Terry. You. Yeah, thanks. Bye, guys. Thanks for listening to the Unfair Advantage Project. For more curated resources, visit us at unfairadvantageproject.com.